As we come back together on this Palm Sunday, we will read a, a passage that hopefully is familiar to you. It's an encouraging story, and I want to give it, uh, again, some of its context as I am fond of doing. But as you hear this, I want you to, perhaps this morning more so than at other times, um, listen. Don't follow along in your Bible. We'll go back to it. If you open your Bible, that's great. But listen to the story as we hear from the Gospel of Luke about Jesus' entrance. Just use your ears and perhaps even your imagination to put yourself in the place and time. Hear now God's Word. When they had said these things, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When He drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, At the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has yet ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And he said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. They threw, throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and he rode along. They spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way, Down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God, a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent... Even the stones would cry out. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that we might see your Son riding afresh. We might be captured by the beauty and the power, the glory, the gravity of what it is to have the King ride into and establish Himself. We pray, Lord, that we too might rejoice this morning and know what it is to have a king. And Lord, to delight in that king, loving his subjects and giving himself for them. Whatever is said this morning, Lord, that does not reflect the truth and the beauty of who you are, we pray that you would protect your people from those words. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. As we come uh, to this passage again, it's a glorious day. We love to, to, uh, to play with the palms. I mean, fold them into a cross. Uh, they, it's a great picture, right? Some of the other Gospels talk to us about how the children participated in this amazing moment and joined in this celebration. But of course, the question is always, what does it mean? What are the implications? 
We may say, were you there, right? I'm sure for most of the week, were you there when Jesus rode in, when this Nazarene fellow rode in and, and, and people were out there and we were caught up in the moment. It was amazing. And we all have those kinds of, of major events in any culture, in any nation's history, in our culture, uh, you know, ones that stick out, you know, that, that march across the bridge in Selma and, and how that became this huge event which shaped and changed the direction of the civil rights movement and the implications we're still unpacking. Or for those of us, most of us in this room, who remember 9-11 and what happened in that tragic event and the implications, many of which we are dealing with today, to this very day, wars that continue, changes in views of privacy and laws. Or perhaps what we learned about those of us who had the opportunity on Friday to go down and hear from the folks at Safe Family when a woman distraught walked into Dr. Anderson's office and said, you need to take my children. There are 50,000 kids that have been ministered to since that woman walked in and demanded not just government care, but more than that, love for her children and a safe place. You have to figure out a way for me and my family to stay together. You have the ability, you have the authority, you have access to resources. You have to help me. Almost like that woman in Scripture banging on the door of the unjust judge and banging on that door until finally there is a response. Or the woman not letting go until you bless me. The implications of those events, some of them massive, and we all know about them. Some of them started quietly and now we have the privilege of hearing about what God has been doing ever since that woman walked into the right man's office who'd already been thinking about how it might be done differently and the Spirit using her as an impetus to move forward and the implications of what has happened since. And so we have these big events and we have Jesus riding in and we have to ask ourselves the question, as the people in Jerusalem did, what does it mean? What are the implications? So first this morning, uh, Jesus as the king, second, Jesus as a kingdom bringer, and then finally, the consequences of Jesus' triumphal entry. So first of all, Jesus as King. Jesus knows Scripture. He knows who He is. He knows why He's here. And so it's not surprising that this is a staged event. And I mean that in the best sense of the word. Jesus grabs hold of all of the imagery of the Messianic King and begins to live it out and transform it. And so he does ride in, as Zechariah 9.9 talks about, on a colt. And this picture of a Davidic king riding in, not so much on a war horse, but on a humble colt. A sign of peace, not entering the city declaring war, but declaring peace for that city. Jesus, grab holds, Jesus grabs hold of that image. And most people 
experiences his triumphal entry would have known what that cult meant and what it meant for people to be coming out and being excited and getting caught up in the moment because he was grabbing hold of the imagery of a king, the king, the messianic king. And it is such a glorious event. And as they are praising him, worshiping him, the Pharisees, of course, become unnerved because they also know what it means. And whether they're thinking on a horizontal basis, that is, Jesus, you know what's going to happen. If you come into this city being praised by all of the masses as a king, Pilate may notice, other people are going to notice, this could go poorly. They might have Jesus' best interests at heart. This is not the way you ride into the city unless you want to be martyred because we've had a couple of would-be messiahs. There's going to be a couple that are going to follow Jesus and it all works out badly. Or maybe they didn't have Jesus' best interests at heart and they recognize that he is grabbing hold of this divine imagery and they're saying, you realize they're praising you as if you are God's man. And shouldn't you shut them up? Because we know you're not. Or at least we think you're not. Or we aren't going to give you the credit for being who you say you are. Who you've acted like. And Jesus' response is again so powerful. Because his simple statement is... This day is so momentous. I am who I am. And if the people were too blind to respond, creation itself, even the stones, would praise God for what is happening and celebrate my entry into this city. This is so momentous that creation itself, if humanity had not stepped up and done what it should, which it did on this day, Maybe not fully understanding what they were doing, but nonetheless, the people responded and they praised God. But Jesus is saying, look, if you had been too thick, too dull, too deaf, the stones were not. They would have praised me. They would have celebrated my entrance. He also brings a kingdom. It's described as the people exuberantly praising the Lord and using their psalms to sing the praises of God. They reference the great promises of peace and the reality that heaven and earth are supposed to be united and that this is a promise of God dwelling amongst His people and they sing these psalms and they praise God for who He is. Because Jesus brings a kingdom. A king brings a new administration and a new kingdom. It is one that is going to transform lives. It's going to transform empires. Not in the normal way that empires are transformed with swords and spears. 
but with love and compassion and service and care for the other. Remember what the people are praising Him for, all of the miraculous signs they've seen. And so the Gospel of Luke has showed us time and time again the power of Jesus to transform lives. And most recently, He has been showing the difference between the normal way in which people get into the kingdom, at least that's the way people think, which is hard work and obeying certain religious laws in order that you can in one way or another, force God into accepting you because you've met whatever qualifications the law or your religion established. And Jesus has blown a huge hole in that in his talking about the two men who went up to the temple to pray just two chapters before. And we saw what happened when the rich young ruler comes and he's done everything and yet what he cannot do is give up that which gives him security, which is his money. He earned it. It's his power. It's his comfort. It is his sign of blessing. And he can't give it up. And we saw Zacchaeus, a man ostracized from the kingdom of God, who had put all of his hope in worldly wealth. And when he comes into contact with Jesus, he gives that away. And he, according to Jesus, is in the kingdom. Today, salvation has come to this house. He has brought people back from the dead. He has healed the sick. He has cared for the ostracized. He has brought those ethics and those realities both in power, in word, and in deed. And the people are praising Him for it. He brings a kingdom. But there are also consequences to the kingdom coming. Jesus brings a kingship he brings a kingdom, and there are consequences to that reality. Some of them are in the passage just in front of us. Jesus preaches a sermon, gives a parable about three servants who are given various sums of money. And of course, the famous part of that story is that one of them buries his talent because he's afraid of what might happen if he didn't do well with his uh, managing of the money and investment. And he simply gives it back to the master when he returns. It doesn't go well. The master had expected some return on investment, some willingness to risk. We don't bury the gifts of God. The indictment, of course, was for the children of Israel at that point that they had been given the law. They'd been given in the best sense of the law. I know that's a bad word for us, but it doesn't have to be. It is a revelation of the character and nature of God. Yes, if you adopt the Ten Commandments as a way to try and make God happy with you, it will kill you. But if you use the Ten Commandments as a way to experience intimacy with God, what does it mean for me not to covet because I know God has given me everything? God is warning me against looking at other people's stuff, and it's never fun to really covet other people's stuff. It usually makes me feel poorly. But God says, no, no, no. 
Children of Israel, I just brought you out of slavery. We're going through the wilderness together. I'm giving you food. I'm giving you water. You literally pillaged Egypt. You have lots of stuff which you can use to make beautiful things when you get to the promised land. Y'all are all right. Let me warn you against looking to the right or to the left and wanting other people's stuff. That's not meant to be a cruel rule for me not to look around and enjoy nice things. Not some litmus test where God can whack me on the back of the head because I look too long at that passing Ferrari. They're beautiful. But does it infest my thoughts? It's not a question of whether I like to enjoy beautiful things. But isn't it gracious that God warns me that covetousness will destroy my life? and destroy the relationships around me. Was that law ever meant to be a way for God to crush me? Because God is generous. So we have this view of the law that isn't necessarily the view that the first century Jewish folks had. They did believe that it was a gracious provision of the Lord to let them know who He was, that they might delight in His presence. Did they bat a thousand? No, they made mistakes, as we all do. But it was a gift they were supposed to give to the nations. And they didn't. They hadn't. They had not been that blessing that they were called to be. They were not caring for the other well. And Jesus regularly in His ministry draws their attention to how even in their pursuit of the law in certain ways it had actually made it harder for them to love the other. To come alongside those who they were supposed to be ministering to. To bring them into the kingdom. The judgment in the passage just in front of the triumphal entry is one of the people who had been given everything and instead of lavishly investing it in the world around them, they had filled up the court of the Gentiles with the pragmatic need to do business of selling sacrificial animals. There was no room for the other in their place of worship. There was no way that the Gentile could come in to the courts of the temple because the place that was set aside for them had been utilized for the pragmatic need of selling sacrificial animals which was actually a need and was not the problem. The problem was where it was being done. And it was being done in the only place set aside for those who were not Jewish. They buried their talents and he rides in saying, one of the things that's going to need to be addressed is you cannot bury the gifts of what I've given you. Don't tell me that you were afraid that you'd be unclean and that was a harsh and angry God and that if you got too close to a Roman or you didn't have the right sacrificial animal, that that's how I would judge you. Don't tell me you thought that I was a harsh master. You know the book better. You know that it's not the right sacrifice but a broken and contrite heart that the Lord will not despise. I've revealed my goodness to you. At the very least you could have done was put it in the bank so it got a little bit of credit. A little bit of interest. So there are implications to the king riding in and his, and his kingdom. We see that in front. We see it on the back side of this passage. 
If we keep reading what happens, if you have your scriptures in front of you, Jesus stops and he looks at Jerusalem and he weeps. Imagine the rest of the way Jesus rides into Jerusalem is one who weeps over what's going to happen because they're going to deny him, betray him, and abandon his kingdom. There are logical consequences for ignoring God as king. There is such a thing as justice. And even as God dispenses mercy, when we reject that mercy, the only other option is that we now stand in the dock and we have to bear the burden of justice ourselves. When you choose to reject mercy, when you choose to reject the kingdom, that doesn't mean justice just simply goes away. That the realities of this broken world and the weight of sin and death simply, the option isn't accept mercy or just accept yourself. Accepting yourself does have simple implications. And Jesus weeps over them. When you reject me, and when you choose power, and when you choose wealth, and when you choose religious vigor, guess what? At some point, you will make the Romans mad. And they're not terribly forgiving. The Pax Romana was maintained so that they could make money. And you can do a lot of fun things in my empire, but you mess up trade through that central region of Jerusalem that may impact my bottom line, oh, I'm going to straighten that out pretty quick. Which isn't all that different than today. We can all be very nice countries to one another unless you mess with trade. And the Romans kept the trade routes open. And Jesus wept over what that would mean for Jerusalem. To be crushed. The next, of course, is the cleansing of the temple, where Jesus reminds us that that space was meant to be open for others, that they might draw near and hear the good word, hear the good news of a God who redeemed his people from Egypt, a God who brought them back from exile in Babylon, a God who's been faithful and faithful and faithful and faithful, and they were to hear the words of God, and they were to hear the promise of what it meant to be restored and rejoice. And they were barred from ever getting close. There are consequences. As wonderful as it is to see him ride in. Scripture regularly warns that that doesn't mean the status quo is maintained. It means actually that everything's going to change. That there is a king, there is power, there is mercy. So what does it mean for us? Right? If this great event, what does is, what is Palm Sunday mean to us? I would say, first and foremost, to myself... It means that E.C. Bell is not the center of the universe. Interestingly enough, Jesus is the one who rides into Jerusalem. Turns out, he's king. Turns out, the stones would sing for him. Not for me. 
as wonderful as I am, and I am dearly loved by God, and there's no doubt that at this moment, what I'm about to say, some of you may want me desperately to remind us of the wonderful personal relationship we have with God, and the fact that He bled for you and for me, and you're going to want to run to John 3.16, but I'm telling you, the most important part of this passage is that the world does not revolve around you and me. The center of the universe is the creator of the universe, God himself. That's the center. Everything circles around the divine. I know we're not supposed to say that these days because that makes God seem sort of, I don't know, needy of attention. Like he created this thing because he wanted to be the attention, the center of somebody's universe. And there wasn't a universe, so he made one so he could be the center of it. That is a horrible thing to think. I know the temptation. But the only reason I think that about God is because I want to be the center of the universe. There's only place for one of us to be the center of the universe. And it's Christ. Which means now I am a satellite revolving around His gravitational pull. I am the one captured by His beauty, His kingship, His kingdom, and therefore His rules. His rules of what mercy looks like and who mercy gets extended to. And dare I say, even accepting the fact that He's wise enough and loving enough to administer justice in a way that I can scarcely imagine. Because all I understand is vengeance. And yet He knows how to be merciful and just. It means I'm not the center of the universe. The one who rides in on Palm Sunday is Jesus, not me. So, a couple of personal, I mean, not just about personal for me, although I could confess all the ways that I need to get out of the center of my universe. Uh, Kids, it means that you are not the center of your parents' universe of the world in which you live, and your families. You shouldn't be the center. I know it's tempting to want to be, and sometimes as parents we lavish our love on our kids, but you aren't the center of the universe. And you shouldn't be. Because if you become the center of your parents' universe, that means Jesus isn't, and that's going to make them less than better parents they're going to be more inclined to pander to your weakness than care for you that you might grow and know the wisdom of what it is to have a God who is the center of everyone's universe in our home. That everything centers around Him, not you. And in that, you actually get better parents. Ones who will be loving and not subject to your whims or the fears of you throwing a tinner tantrum. And it just changes what kind of tinner tantrum you throw when you're four, and when you're 14. But usually, isn't that because you haven't gotten your way? And isn't that because at that moment you think you should be the center of your parents' universe? But it's not just for our kids. It's for us as as married couples to make the spouse the center of your universe or want yourself to be the spouse the center of your spouse's universe is to pervert the nature of marriage itself. 
Most of the problems I find in pastoral care in counseling folks is that one way or another, the needs of the spouse have become more important than Jesus themselves in a marriage relationship, and it has broken down. One spouse has maybe abandoned certain biblical ethics because they're trying so hard to make their spouse happy. And interestingly enough, they could not fill that hole. That vacuum was too big, and no matter how much they gave of themselves, they could not fill that hole for their spouse. And when they start to put Jesus back in the center of the relationship, it becomes a struggle for them because the other spouse no longer feels like they're getting all of the attention. Exactly. You never should have. Because Jesus is the center of a marriage that allows then for genuine care and love. For flourishing in a way that, that is so wonderful and delightful and drives out fear, drives out anxiety, drives all manner of things that destroy a marriage to the periphery because Christ is at the center. If you make the spouse, your spouse, the center of your world and your universe, everything else will spin out of control. You put Christ back in the center and gravity is restored. The laws of relationship are maintained. Friendships, friendships in so many ways are a lost art. Speaking to someone earlier this week about the fact that we don't know how friendship works to such a degree that in our societies, relationships, particularly between men, that are as intimate and as open and as caring as we see between David and Jonathan in our culture, we have to imagine that it was somehow sexual as well. We've lost the ability to have true, deep friendships that don't get weird because we don't know how to do it anymore to be that open and that transparent, that we imagine if men actually loved each other that much, that there must be something else and it gets tainted and we lose the initiative and that narrative of what it means for people to be open before the Lord and to have relationships that are so transparent because Christ is at the center that it becomes unnerving for people around them to say, Look how much they love Jesus and one another. Friendships will only be restored. The power of them, the ones we see in Scripture, can only be transformed. I mean, we could go on endlessly with Ruth and Naomi and the, what happens when love and friendship with God at the center. Your God will be my God and your people my people. And Ruth was able to have a friendship with Naomi, that to this day is inspiring and challenging. When he is king, when he is the center, relationships have a new chance. Lastly, the church. What would it mean for the, the king to be the center of the church? Not as a good luck charm, not in a traditional religious sense of we pay our alms and we show up and we get the divine to give us health, reasonable, basic financial security, fill in the blanks. A little comfort, a little help. But if Jesus was at the center, what does that mean to 
the rooms of the church, the relationships of the church? Is there space for the other, the one that is not like us, culturally, socially, economically, educationally, racially? Struggling with gender and sexuality. Fill in the blank. Is there enough space in the court of the Gentiles? Or have we filled it up with something else? Would the king come and find that there was not room to do in the life of the church the very central things that are true of the kingdom and the king? Do we hear the warnings as well as the assurances of love and forgiveness? And do we always reflect on the fact that it is He that is central? Therefore, He makes the rules. He directs our paths. He tells us what is central. The triumphal entry is a king establishing his throne. He's going to have to go through one more trial. He is going to have to bear the reality of our sin and brokenness and evil, he will have one more lesson to teach us about the nature of what a king looks like and how a king truly establishes power, how a king truly establishes justice, and how a king truly establishes mercy to the degree that we can then find comfort, even for a sermon like this, that there is a new way of understanding power that undermines everything the world thinks. This king who is the center of the universe will be stripped naked, beaten, and hung on a cross. That's what the center of the universe does to show its character and its nature, to remind us that this was not simply an ego trip for the divine, to create something that would worship him. But it was an unbelievable exhibition of unconditional love and glory and holiness that designed something and made it so that he could die for it. To show his real power and glory. For us to know what real life is, eternal life. That's the nature of the king. That's who we celebrate and contemplate and mourn and reflect and rejoice on this holy week. It is not a normal week. May this usher in a Sunday where you can reflect on the glory of the triumphal entry and the triumph of our king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Lord, we desire to both Rest in you and to be diligent workers of the goodness of who you are. Protect us from confusing those two, but way through the Spirit, the co-laboring with you in the glory of your kingdom, draw us closer to you and to one another. In Christ's name, amen.